All right, thank you, Carla. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on this journey through the letter of Paul to the Colossians, we know that um, that was a real local church uh, there around 62 AD. Uh, but that letter was written to more than just uh, those Christians in that day. Uh, those words penned by Paul were uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit and recorded for us in this day. So we pray that, Lord, its pages would go deep with us as a church and as ind individuals, and that we would see to a greater degree than ever before the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Lord, over all things seen and unseen. And, uh, and so speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I got home from church last week, and um, I thought, before I take my, my customary Sunday nap, that I would uh, check out the Vikings game. I, most of you know I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, and, um, and so I thought, I, I really haven't seen them play. They're having a good year, and uh, maybe I can catch a little bit of the game, and that would be awesome. So uh, by, besides the fact that they're playing the Packers, our arch uh, divisional rivals. And uh, I have relatives who live in Shano, which is right by Green Bay. A lot of them have season tickets to the Packers and I might catch them on the camera, you know. And I, I'll catch a little bit of the game. And then this thought hit me, this weird little thought that, you know, it seems to me that every time I actually watch a Vikings game, They don't do well. And so, and so if I turn on the TV, is it possible, is it possible that somehow my turning on the TV is going to impact that game? Then I thought, come on, Fadness, you're a Christian. You don't believe in that pagan superstitious stuff. So, so I go ahead and turn on the TV, and, and I'm pleased to see that the Vikes are up 3-0, and they're getting ready to kick off. So I, I sit down, and Vikes are lined up, and they kick off, and Packer guy gets it at the goal line, and, and I watch. It was amazing to my eyes to see how the Vikings seem to purposely get out of the way. <laughs> That's the way it looked to me, that, that there was this, like the parting of the Red Sea just opened up this lane for the guy to run to the end zone. And I said to myself, sorry, Vikings, that one's on me. I'm going to take my nap. And uh, I shut it off. But we chuckled at that. But, but many people really do think that events are being controlled by some impersonal force in the universe. Like people really believe that. And, and maybe it has to do with how the stars are aligned when they were born in the year. I did a search 
on Apple Podcast app uh, yesterday. I just typed in astrology. I, and I started scrolling through. I couldn't get to the end of how, I mean, there was hundreds of podcasts about astrology. So I looked at one, um, but, but they're trying, you know, they're all trying to help people understand how the stars are sovereign <laughs> to one degree or another over our lives and control us and our destinies. And if you can understand how they control us, then we can work with them and have our best life. You know what I mean? So, so we can get what we want out of the powers over us. So, so I looked at one. Um, uh, it's called Ghost of a Podcast by Jessica Lanyadu. And the description says this, Lanyadu is an astrologer, psychic medium, and an animal communicator with more than 25 years of consulting experience. Lanyadu answers listeners' questions, teaches astrology, drops a horoscope every Sunday, including best practices for your week ahead. Okay, so, so you know why people are, are into this. So, so the idea is, if, if I adjust my life to the alignment of the stars, if I listen to this guru or the other one or whatever, then I'll be able to get what I want out of life. If I work with the sovereigns over my life, then, then I'm, I, I've got a better shot at getting what I want in life. The stars are sovereign, they emanate an invisible force into the world that influences my life. So, so if you want to be successful, if you want to get all that you want out of life, you've got to bend your life to the stars or whatever else it may be. So let that astrologer counsel you. Well, I bring that up because the letter of Paul to the Colossians uh, deals with that issue among others. Who or what is sovereign over the universe and over our lives and over the events of our life? What does cause things to happen or not happen or change or not change? So what controls the universe? Does our diet influence our spirituality and our holiness? What about religious rituals and ceremony? Do they have some kind of power to bring us our best life? Can they bring us closer to God? Or more to the point, can they get God to give us what we want? Because that's really kind of the core of the issue. Paul's answer to the Colossians is that Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything. Jesus Christ is absolutely authoritative and in control over everything you see and everything you cannot see. And so he is Lord over the visible realm. He is Lord over the invisible realm. He created all things and he upholds all things. That's found in Colossians 1 verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. 
So he is utterly sovereign over every ruler, every power, everything. And so we're calling this series The Supremacy of Christ because without question, the central theme of the Colossian letter is the supremacy of Christ over all things, including your life. And let me suggest that this is the central theme of life itself. Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things, the sovereign over the universe, the earth, the governments, the powers, the people, everything and everybody. He's sovereign over angels and demons. He's sovereign over Satan himself. He's sovereign over atoms and molecules, everything. He is the plumb line of reality. He is God incarnate. Therefore, he is reality incarnate. If your narrative of reality doesn't have Jesus in it, then you are disconnected from reality. What is life? What is the future? Why are we on this sphere that spins in space? If Jesus isn't in your equation, then really you don't have a clue. Even still, humans are permeated with the desire of a life of their own choosing. All people have desires and wishes and dreams for what they want their life to look like and their life to be. And it's, I mean, I think it's as natural as breathing. But those desires and dreams inevitably revolve around our temporal existence on earth. They're limited, they're truncated. And so Christians can fall into this kind of impoverished uh, kind of living uh, very, very easily. Just as people look to astrology or whatever else to, to try and get what they want out of life, Christians can also do the very same thing. I taught um, our uh, high school uh, slash junior high chapel this last week on Thursday, and um, I illustrated this point to them from John chapter 6. Maybe you recall this story. Um, Jesus, at this point in his life and ministry, was doing miracles, and crowds were gathering around him. People were super curious about him, and they wanted to you know, hear about more about him and they wanted to see a miracle or, or maybe even receive a miracle if they needed one. And so big crowds are gathering. And, uh, and so on this particular occasion, Jesus goes up a mountain and Israel's mountain is really kind of a hill, but he goes up a, uh, we would call it a hill, they call it a mountain. And thousands of people follow him, literally thousands. And so they're just trudging up the hill and, and you know, at a certain point, Jesus gets to the, to the spot, a grassy place at the top of the hill, and he's there with Philip the disciple, and, and they're looking at about 10,000 people, just seeing them come on up. I mean, can you imagine, just this massive crowd, and Jesus says to Philip, hey, Philip, it's kind of late in the day. Now, he, Jesus didn't say this, I'm filling in the blanks for him. Not a whole lot of place to get food around here. Where are we going to get food for all these people? Philip 
he, he jumps right over the where do you get the food to the where do you get the money to get the food? <laughs> goes, you know, he, he calculates it really quickly in his head. He goes, man, that's going to take two, at least 200 denarii to get everybody at least a, you know, a decent snack, you know, 200 denarii, about 20 grand or so in today's dollars, 10,000 people, two bucks a piece, loaf of bread a piece, whatever, you know, where are we going to get 20 grand? And then Andrew is hearing this between Jesus and Philip. And Andrew says, Lord, I, I, you know, there's this kid over here. He's got five loaves of bread and he's got two fishes. Now, I don't know if, if that means anything. And Jesus smiles and he says, have the crowd sit down. And the disciples had some baskets. And so Jesus had them grab the baskets, empty baskets. and. They brought him to Jesus, and in front of everybody, Jesus thanks the Father for the food, and uh, he then blesses the bread and begins to distribute and fill those baskets. And he keeps filling them. From the five loaves of bread, he keeps filling the baskets. All 12 baskets were full, and they brought it out to the crowd. Came back with empty baskets, Jesus filled them again until everybody had a loaf of bread. Then they came back with the empty baskets, filled them up with fish, miraculously. They divvied it out to all the people, came back with everything, filled it up. And the Bible says that they ate until they had their fill. So this was buffet unlimited, okay? You can eat all you want. You can eat more than you need. Now's the time. When you pay that 20 bucks down at you know, uh, Golden Corral, you tend to eat probably a little bit more than you usually do, don't you? I'm getting my money's worth. I only usually go back three times. I'm going back five. And after they were done, disciples went out and they gathered up 12 full baskets of leftovers. An amazing miracle. It was absolutely astounding. Well, the crowd was so impressed and so amazed by Jesus that he gave them what they needed, but he gave them what they wanted. They were so impressed they wanted him to be their king. They were ready. He's our guy. He gives us what we want. He's our king. Now, Jesus knew what was going on, knew what the scuttlebutt was in the crowd, and he left that scene unannounced, and he ended up going across the Galilee over to the Capernaum side, and uh, people didn't know it, but when they discovered that he was gone, the next day, they did a little bit of research, they found out where he went, and they followed him, at least many of them did, followed him over to the Capernaum side of the Sea of Galilee. And they find Jesus, and, and they begin to gather around him again, and Jesus, first thing out of his mouth, I tell you guys the truth, you're here because I fed you. Not because you understood the miracle. And then he, he basically explained the miracle. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures forever. Now that prompted a question. Somebody said, what do we do to be doing the works of God. 
Now, now don't, don't, don't take that to mean how do, we, uh, how do we gain eternal life? You know, what rules do we follow? No, context of the story, they were saying, what must we do so that we can get God to give us what we want? How can we control God? How can we control you, who obviously has power to control everything? And in some sense, that's what all humanity is asking. How do I control the sovereign powers to get what I want? Everyone has wishes and hopes and desires and people want a good life and a good husband or wife and a healthy family and a big truck, a boat would be nice, some fame and some fortune, some whatever, happiness. People want these things. So what do I need to do to get you to cooperate with me? Stars, how do I, how do I work with your alignment to make this next week successful? God, what do I do? to get you to give me what I want. Jesus answers their question. John 6, 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it? <laughs> believe in Jesus? Now, when Jesus says believe in him, you need to know he doesn't mean merely believe it as a fact that he exists in your head, okay? That's mental assent. That's just intellectual assent to a fact. So you may believe intellectually that Jesus really lived, that he's a real historical person, that he died on a cross, even that he rose from the dead. And that's good. I mean, it's good that you intellectually embrace those things. But the word Jesus uses for believe, it's more than intellectual assent. It means to trust. To trust. So to believe means more than agreeing that Jesus existed and did all those things. It means to trust. Believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, so that's good. But do you trust Jesus? I, I don't want to be presumptuous here this morning, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that we all believe in the Perrine Bridge. Anybody? Any atheists about the Perrine Bridge? Okay, so, so we all believe in the Perrine Bridge. We see it. We know it exists. It's irrefutable. It's physically apparent. But if you want to drive to the other, the north side of the canyon, at some point, you've got to go beyond just believing in the Brian Bridge. You've got to trust that thing. And to trust it, you've got to put your whole weight on it. And, and so you can't, you can't partially trust it. You can't, you can't, well, I'm just going to put my foot on it. Well, then you're never going to get across. You've got to trust it with your whole weight. And if you can't trust it or won't trust it, then your belief is not, it's not Bible kind of belief. Bible kind of belief is you put your whole weight 
on a thing. In this case, believe in who? Jesus. You put the weight of your life upon Jesus. You trust Jesus with your life. And if you don't trust Jesus or haven't trusted Jesus, the result probably is you're just trying to get what you want from God out of life. How can I get God to give me what I want? But even those who have trusted Christ, who are Christians, they fall in to that, that mode of existence of just trying to get God to bend to their desires. But Jesus said things like, listen, those who seek their life will lose it. But those who abandon their life to me, they'll find it. And so apparently some of the Colossian Christians, they fell in to this kind of thinking. And so Paul addresses this, this issue in Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So seek the things that are above not the things that are on earth. So Paul's words, they echo Jesus' words to that crowd that he fed, don't they? Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures forever. It's the same thought. It's the same idea. Here's what I want your life to look like. Here's what it looks like for people who follow me. And Paul says there in Colossians, Christ is your life. Wow. That's a massive state. That's an all-encompassing statement. He doesn't say Christ is a part of your life. Or even Christ is a huge part of your life. No, that doesn't get there. Christ literally is your life. And we are on a collision course with him and with glory. Life on earth will one day give way to our glorious future that's been awaiting us. And when he appears, Paul says, we will appear with him. Jesus is our life and he is our future. So we set our minds, therefore, on things above, not on things on earth. We set our minds on things above where our life is. Everything we can see with our eyes is perishing. Everything. So by abandoning our life to Jesus, by letting go of what we can't hang on to anyway, God is able to bless you beyond what you could ask or even think. 
right? That's that Ephesians verse. He, he blesses us beyond, beyond what you could pursue on an earthly level. And it begins with trusting in Jesus, the sovereign Lord of all things. Let me give you just a little bit of historical cultural background to set the stage going forward next week and beyond. So let's talk briefly about the city of Colossae. So Colossae was one of a, a tri-city area, three cities uh, located about 100 miles or a little more from Ephesus, which was the big metropolitan city in that area. The two other cities were Laodicea. Now that's going to ring some biblical bells in your mind from Revelation, right? And Hierapolis, which also is a biblical city. But at one time, all three cities were big and prosperous. They were thriving. And, uh, but after the Romans built their, their east-west highway called the Via Ignatia, um, and it went, uh, it bypassed Colossae. It didn't go, you know, uh, through Colossae, but it bypassed it. Colossae began to, to dwindle. It became what we'd call a small town. So it was, at the time of Paul's writing, a small, insignificant town. Yet, this small town, which had a small church that met in a home, maybe they met some other places as well, but it was significant enough to receive a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know if you consider Twin Falls a small town or not. I, I, I'm confused by it because I came here from Southern California and I used to think, man, this is a small town. But now that I lived here for 28 years, judging by the surrounding towns, we're the metropolis, baby. <laughs> 50,000 people. But regardless, if you live in Twin Falls or in Kimberly or Hanson or Filer or Eden or wherever, the Lord is concerned about your little community. And he's concerned about the churches that are in those communities and our community. He's concerned about this church. Not only that, but we know that Paul didn't start the church, and nor as far as we can tell from Scripture, he never even visited the church. He merely heard about the church. We get that from Colossians 1.3 in our passage. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So at some point, Paul got word that there was a church born in Colossae and that these people were an incredible group of people. So here was a small church in a small town receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul, which would ultimately make it into the Bible. That's what we're studying this morning. This is the very letter that Paul wrote to this small church in a small town. 
in A.D. 62. So Paul heard of their faith in Jesus, but watch this. The verse says there, the end of verse 4, and the love they had for all the saints. Not, not just the saints of their church, but for all the saints, meaning the church, big C church. That little C local church had a love for the big C global church. That's what that means. And so many people in this day and age will, will say, admit to, well, I admire Jesus and uh, I'm a fan of his teachings. I even try and incorporate some of his teachings into my life. It's the church I have a problem with. It's Christians that trouble me. Listen, the church is made up of people. <laughs> it's made up of people just, just like you. And it's made up of people from all ethnicities. It's made up of people who were antagonistic previously toward Christianity. It's made up of formerly hardcore atheistic types. It's full of people who were committed to religion in some way or another and morality and spirituality, but maybe didn't understand the message of the gospel and of Jesus. But when they heard it, they said, yes, it's full of people of all stripes to quote the famous theologian's Sonny and Cher. <laughs> Gypsies, tramps, and thieves are in the church. Anybody under 40 didn't even get that reference. <laughs> They're just going, what does that even mean? So the point is the church is full of all kinds of people from all walks of life and there are plenty of things we can criticize about the church. There's no, there's no small list of things we can be critical about from failed leaders to, you know, misguided policies or whatever. There's lots. But Paul is impressed by the fact that the Colossian Christians love the saints. They love the church in spite of her flaws. Now, we can't miss this part of it. Why? How are they able? And this is a church that has some problems, by the way, which we will discover. Why are they able to have this love for the church? Man, I love the church. I love the church. How is that love able to be present and sustained? Well, the answer, I think, is right there in verse 5. It says, because of the hope laid up in heaven for you. You love the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven for you. So somehow, our hope of heaven, by the way, hope is assurance, it's certainty. We know that this is what is coming. And so, the Colossian Christians weren't thrown by the imperfect uh, Christians or the failure of leaders. They were confident in the fact that all of God's imperfect people were heading for perfection. 
They were convinced that one day all of our sin and toil and struggle will give way to glory and joy and Christ-likeness. And that confident expectation gave them a proper, commendable love for God's people everywhere. Do you love the saints? Not just the saints in this church, but all saints everywhere. Do you love the church? If not, could it be that your hope of heaven isn't where it needs to be? Well, here's how the church at Colossae began. And we're almost done. Paul was ministering in Ephesus, remember, 100 or so miles away, for three years. On his third missionary journey, his final missionary journey, he was ministering at Ephesus for three years. The gospel went out from Ephesus during those three years to, to the whole region at that time. We know that from Acts 19.10. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. From Ephesus, the word going out. And at least two guys from Colossae, Epaphras, Epaphras, and Philemon came to faith in Jesus Christ at Ephesus under Paul's ministry. Now, Epaphras became a church leader. He brought the gospel from Ephesus back to Colossae, and he became, he shared the gospel with people there, and he became at least a church leader. We know that from verse 7. Colossians 1 verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Okay, so you following that? So Epaphras, he comes to Christ in Ephesus where Paul is preaching. Epaphras heads back to his little small town where he lives. He starts sharing the gospel that he received. And some people come to faith in Christ. And now they begin to gather. The other guy who came to Christ in Colossae, Philemon, he hosted a church in Colossae. And he got a, a letter written to him by Paul that made it into the Bible by his name, Philemon, right? And so Philemon, in Philemon, there's only one chapter, verse 2, it says, to Philemon... Our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So now we know that the Colossian church, at least part of it, was meeting in Philemon's house. So it was a house church. When Paul wrote the Colossian letter, he was in prison in Rome, and I, I can't kind of detail all the references this morning, but it's easy enough to find. While in prison in Rome, Paul met a runaway slave called Onesimus. Now, some of you Bible guys and gals are going, wait a minute, Philemon Onesimus. It's like, oh, I think I'm making some connections here. So Onesimus ran away. He was owned by a guy in Colossae named Philemon. Onesimus runs away to Rome and he runs right into the Apostle Paul. What does the Apostle Paul do? 
he does what the Apostle Paul does and leads them to Christ. And then there's this, this dilemma, well, what do I do now? I'm a runaway slave. What do I do with my life? I mean, I don't want to live as a slave. And Paul says, dude, you need to go back. If God grants you your freedom, oh, man, that'd be awesome. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you back with a letter because I know your master, Philemon. He loves Jesus just like you do now. And he's going to know that you're now his brother in Christ. And it's going to shape your relationship, I'm confident. And Paul sent not only the letter of Philemon with Philemon, but he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Now, here's what happened. And there's a lot of detail. <laughs> Epaphras, remember him? The other guy who came to Christ in Ephesus, lived in Colossae, right? Epaphras goes to Rome. He needs to talk to Paul. Because there's problems in the Colossae church. There's, there's philosophies coming in, worldly philosophies, and people are thinking that there's like deeper things that you can get through angels and spirits and, 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 and all this, this kind of stuff. And I need to know how to deal with this stuff. Paul, can you tell me? And Paul pens what we have in front of us this morning. And Onesimus, we believe, carries... And Epaphras, the letter of Colossians, as well as the letter of Philemon to Colossae, and delivers them to their destinations. Colossians is a corrective letter, which means it will correct us. It will get us free from pagan superstitions like believing in jinxes or luck or turning the TV to watch a game will somehow affect the outcome. <laughs> or certain diets will make us more holy, or there's secret knowledge that can be revealed to us by angels or spirit beings, or keeping the Sabbath will, will make us closer to God, or doing what we do uh, according to God's way will force God to give us what we want, and on and on and on. We'll be corrected about those kinds of things. And we need to be because we love and serve the sovereign king over all creation, seen and unseen. Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things. For whatever is facing you right now in your life, in your health, in your marriage, in your finances, in your family, whatever it is, Jesus is sufficient. He has it all. Warren Wiersbe wrote, quote, we worship God because he is worthy, not because we as worshipers get something out of it. If we look upon worship as only a means of getting something from God rather than giving something to God, then we make God our servant instead of our Lord, and the elements of worship become a cheap formula for selfish gratification. 
we then become like those backslidden priests that the prophet Malachi denounced, men who said, quote, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? You might be in that moment in your life where, where stuff is messed up. Things have not gone well for you recently. And you're going, of what use is it that I worship God? What's the point if this happens? That is a, a, a heart of unbelief. Like the wicked priests had. And we've got to repent of that kind of attitude game. Our God is worthy. On good days and bad days, he's worthy. And we discover that in abandoning our life to him in return, we get above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, our sovereign Lord. You are the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You're the Lord of things seen and unseen. You're the Lord of the angels, you're the Lord of the demons, you're the Lord of Satan, you're the Lord of every human being. Every knee will bow to you and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. And Lord, we delight to do so now. But Lord, we want our lives to match up with our confession. And uh, Lord, calling you Lord of necessity means that we give you access to every bit of our lives. It of necessity means we're taking the weight of, of our life, we're placing it on you, the Lord. And so you have the, the right uh, to do with our lives what you will. And we acknowledge that whatever difficulty is happening in our life right now, that Lord, you, are, you have sovereignly allowed it and you're using it for good. And so rather than complaining about it, Lord, we're gonna praise you in it. Rather than questioning the practicality of believing in God when things go wrong, why would I believe in God if he allows things to go wrong? Rather, Lord, that we would embrace the heart of faith that says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, maybe there's been that kind of a wicked heart in us, those wicked kind of thoughts. And, and we realize, Lord, that you are worthy of glory and honor and praise every minute of every day. And so Lord, we believe, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us where we struggle? And rather than seeking you to, to try and get from you what we want, that Holy Spirit, you would, you would help us into a deeper surrender in allowing you to make of our lives what you want. So Lord, as best we can this morning, we say not our will, but thy will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You are invited. Yeah.
Praise the Lord. So you're invited to make your way uh, to a communion table and uh, commune with the Lord as you go. Pastor Jeff is maybe going to share a word with those of you who are maybe in that place of struggle and haven't quite put the weight of your life upon Jesus. So yeah, as we make our way, this, this meal is for those who believe and, and the belief that, that we talked about this morning, the, the, the weight that you put on, on Jesus for your redemption. And so um, if, if you've already put your weight and faith in Jesus, go ahead and make your way to a communion table. But if you're sitting out there and you're like, you know, I just don't know. You know, maybe that's, that's a scary thing for you to put your faith in something that you don't quite understand yet. And Paul, in writing to the Romans, answered this when, when, when they were, he was explaining to them this. And he said, if you confess Jesus as the Lord Jesus, and, and, and Lord means sovereign, that one that you place your, your faith in for your eternity. That you would be that you would be saved and so we we recognize that that Jesus died for us and this meal that we're going to go through details that 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 our sin was was placed on him that Jesus became our sin and so if if you've come to that place today whether at home or here in, in the audience if you come to that place today where you want to place your faith in Jesus then we'll just have a, a moan of, of, of contemplation about that and then I'll, I'll lead us for those of you in a prayer. So let's pray. Jesus, I do confess you as Lord. I believe in you. I believe that, that your life was lived for me, that your life was perfect, that your life was sinless, and that you exchanged that for my sin. And I place my faith and trust in you. Help me to live for you from here on out. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And so you too, if you've, if you've done that today, can join us in this meal. And we know that Jesus on the night um, that he gathered the 12 in the room, in that upper room, and explained to him what was going to come to pass, that he took the bread. And he, and he blessed it and he, and he gave it to them. And he, he explained that, that this bread was his, was his body that would, that would be given for us that, that um, we know that later would be hung on that tree. So he blessed it. So we'll do the same. So Father, we thank you for the, for the blessing of, of being able to partake of this, of this communion where we remember Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And we look forward to the, to the day when he returns. And as we partake, we, we bless you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And on that same night, he took, he took the cup and he passed it. And he explained that, that the cup was the blood of the new covenant. And he blessed it, so we'll do the same. Father, we thank you for the blessing and bless this cup. It's in Jesus that we look to for the redemption of our sins, and we remember that as we partake. So we, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.